All right. Open your Bible to the book of... Uh, let's open to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Let me read to you Acts chapter 4, verse 31 through verse 33. And you read along with me. It says, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of his things he possessed was his own, But they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Today we're going to talk about uh, divine design. Last week we looked at the account of Jesus, or Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus. And we talked about divine desire. That there was a desire in Zacchaeus that caused him to want to see who Jesus was. And that desire inside of Zacchaeus caused Zacchaeus, a powerful and a rich man, to do things out of the ordinary for him, for who he was, for his position. Today I want to I talk to you about divine design the divine design of the church. Who is the church? Is this building the church? No. The church is people. The church is the people of God. And the divine design of God's people is to be filled with the Spirit. Amen? So, we can think of it this way. We are divinely designed to be filled. And the scripture uses language that, that helps us to understand this. For instance, Paul says we are vessels. Paul, in, 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 uh, in his letters, he says things such as this. And matter of fact, he references what Jeremiah, uh, the Old Testament prophet, had said when he talked about the clay and potter. And, and Paul talks about this in his letter to the Romans, um, how the potter creates a vessel Paul writes and he says, talks about being vessels in a great house. And, and he talks about us being jars of clay or vessels of clay which contain an exceedingly great and precious treasure. Namely, what? The Spirit of God. And so God created us. He designed us to be filled. The question is this, with what shall we be filled? What are you going to be filled with? Because you're going to be filled with something. You will be because God created you and designed you to be filled. There's no question about whether you will be filled. The question is, what are you going to be filled with? And I think this is important. Our design determines that we can or that we will be filled, but it's our desire that will determine what we shall be filled with. So, from this scripture in Acts, we're going to talk about four 
four things that mark the life of a spirit-filled believer. Or we could say a spirit-filled church because we are the church. You are the church. We corporately make up the body of Christ. But we can't talk about this without talking about desire again. We can't talk about this without talking about design because God created you for this purpose, that you would be filled, specifically as a child of God, that you would be filled with his spirit. So let's, let's leave Acts. We're going to come back to Acts, but let's, let's go over to the book of Romans. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. So remember, the question is not whether you will be filled. The question is, what are you going to be filled with? Because you were designed to be filled. Here in Romans, the first chapter, let me read a few verses to you. And I want you to read with me. Get your Bible or get the Bible in the chair back in front of you. And read with me. Let's begin... You know, it's, it's, I hate to just pull scriptures out and read them to you because it's so important that you read and you study the Word of God in context. You get into trouble when you do not read and study the Word in context. And so let's, let's read a few verses here to get the context of what Paul is writing here to the church at Rome. Let me start here. Let's begin in let's begin in verse 16. That's a good place to start. Romans 1:16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Father, we ask you today as we read, as we speak, as we hear, as we take in your gospel, that God, it would be powerful, that it would transform us, it would change us, it would conform us to the image of the Son. Father, we thank you that we do not preach a word that is void of power, but your word is powerful, your gospel is powerful. In fact, it is the only thing that is powerful enough to save us. And so God, we ask today that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that if we have hard hearts, that you'd break our hearts. Give us warm hearts of flesh that can receive the implanted seed of your word. That our lives, God, would bear the fruits of righteousness to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. For in it, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God. It's revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Are you the just? Are you living by faith today? Or are you living by what you're able to see, what you're able to touch and feel and experience? Or are you, in spite of what may be touching your life, what you may be experiencing in your life, what you may be feeling in your life, are you walking by faith in the Son of God, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who, look at this, look at verse verse 18, who suppress the truth 
How? In unrighteousness. So we can't have it both ways. We can't profess to know the truth and live the truth, but yet live unrighteously. When we do that, Paul says, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And this is what men do. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. See how Paul plays with the language there. Invisible yet clearly seen. Paul's not saying, look, God's put neon signposts everywhere to prove that he exists, but his invisible attributes are so real, they're so clearly seen that you have to suppress the truth and unrighteousness in order to miss the truth. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also... I mean, not only did he allow their hearts to become darkened, not only did he allow them to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but he also gave them up to uncleanliness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. This is what Adam and Eve did in the garden in the beginning. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And man has been doing that ever since. And we can read these verses in Romans and we can see the slippery slope. I mean, we can just see man tumbling deeper and deeper and deeper. And Paul is writing this and he's taking us to the depths of depravity here. So he says, they exchange the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Here's the thing. I would venture to say that most people we know today, now there may be some and there are some in some cultures who do this, but most people we would know who are in sin and in idolatry don't have a totem pole in their living room or their bedroom. They're not bowing down to carved images of animals or demons. But when Paul talks about serving the creature, worshiping the creature rather than the creator, guess where I fall into that category? Because I can, I can myself become an object of idolatry. I can worship myself. How? By serving myself, by living for myself, by making this world around me all about myself. I become the center of my universe. I become God, and I become the creature that is worshipped instead of the creator. So don't think that just because you don't have a totem pole, a, a, a statue of some somebody... Humanism 
which pervades our culture today, which many people don't even know what that term means, but the object of worship in humanism is man himself. Because man is the ultimate of this order. We can't even say of this created order because humanists don't believe in creation. They believe in evolution. So this evolved order that exists, guess who's at the pinnacle of this evolved order? Man is. And whether you believe in evolution or creation, whether you profess to believe the Bible and believe in God or not, you can, we can, I can become idolatrous in the way that I live my life when I begin to worship the creature purposefully, not purposefully. When life becomes all about me, I am the creature that now becomes the object of worship, and that is not a good thing. And so Paul goes on and he says, this is what's happened. This is the condition of man. He served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. In other words, remember, by design we can be filled. By desire, we determine what we're filled with. And what Paul is writing here is saying that their desires became so far from God, God just gave them over to the desires of their heart of their debased mind, to do those things which are not fitting. Now look at verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness. They were filled. These creations were filled with something. They were not filled with the right thing. They were filled with all unrighteousness. Why? Because they were by design meant to be filled with something. The question is, what are we going to be filled with? They were filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They were whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, Violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, look at this, but also approve of those who practice them. Well, I personally believe abortion is wrong, but I I think it's okay. I support the right of a woman to abort her baby. Well, I personally think homosexuality is a sin, but I think we should go ahead and pass the Gay Rights Marriage Rights Act and let men marry men and women marry women because, after all, we're in the 21st century and 
You know, it's just the way our culture is. But personally, me, I, don't, I think it's not right, and it's a sin, and I don't, I don't personally believe that. What do we do with that? What do we do with what the Scripture says? That not only those who do those things, but those who approve of those who practice such things. How can we as Christians in good conscience stand up and say, well, it's wrong for me, but it's okay for you? No. If it's wrong, it's wrong. It doesn't really have anything to do with whether it's wrong for me or not. The question is, what does God say about it? And if God says it's wrong, it doesn't matter really what I believe or what I think about it. God has already spoken about the matter, and this is what we must uphold. So, Notice the laundry list of things here. I mean, we want to point at some of these sins and really highlight them, but disobedient to parents. Those who practice such things are deserving of death. Oh, listen, I can say that because I was a child once who was disobedient to his parents. And you know what? It was unrighteousness. Now, we're not going to concentrate on this list here, but I'd say that probably it it pretty much nails all of us. Some form or fashion, there's something here that gets us all, right? And this is why the Bible says, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's not any human being on the face of the earth that does not fall into one or more of those categories. This is who we are apart from Christ. Unredeemed, you know what we are? We are filled with all unrighteousness. This is what the Bible says. So unredeemed man is darkness. Turn over to Ephesians 5. Well, let's go to another scripture. Ephesians 5, verse 6. Let's begin there. Unredeemed man is darkness and filled with all unrighteousness. And you need to understand this. With no capacity, listen to me, with no capacity to be or do anything else because he is totally and completely under the bondage of the law of sin. That's the bad news. This is our condition apart from Christ. Now let's go to Acts, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. Let's start there. Let no one deceive you with empty words. We're talking about being filled today. What are you filled with? Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things... Because of what things? Well, we would have to go back up to the preceding verses to understand what Paul's talking about. Fornication, uncleanliness, covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Verse 4, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, no unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't let anyone tell you anything different. Oh, it's going to be okay. You know, God is love. He doesn't really care what you're going to do one day. He's going to forgive everything, and it's going to all be good. Just live however you want. It'll all be good. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because your life is filled with something. The question is, what's it filled with? For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You need to highlight that phrase in your Bible. Sons of disobedience. That word sons there is not exclusive to the male gender. Women, that word sons includes everyone. Male, female, young, old, it doesn't matter. The wrath of God is coming upon a very specific group of people. They are called the sons of disobedience. What are the sons of disobedience filled with? They're filled with all unrighteousness, and they have no capacity to to be filled with anything else. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. What's the therefore, therefore? This is what's happening to the sons of disobedience. This is who the sons of disobedience are. Therefore, don't be partakers with them. Hey, do you want to split my unrighteous ice cream cone? I'll give you half of it. No, I don't think I want to partake of your unrighteous ice cream cone. I don't want to be a partaker of that. Because, why? Because that's not who I am. Verse 8, for you, for you were, past tense, do you see the past tense? You were, what? Once. You were at one time in the past, what? Darkness. But now, present tense, but now, here's the good news. You are, present tense, you are light. You once were darkness, now you are light. Where? Where? In the Lord. And here's a command. Walk as children of light. Why? Because you're not a son of disobedience anymore. Why? Because you once were darkness, but now you are light. Where? In the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit. Now, it's interesting. Paul links this whole concept with what? With the Spirit of God. Because how did I go from being once darkness to now light? Did I do it through the will of the flesh, through the power of the flesh, or did I do it by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit? That is the correct answer. By the Spirit of God, I once was darkness, but now I am light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But in all things that are exposed, but but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is 
light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep. Are you sleeping? Are you discerning what's going on? Are you walking around in life asleep or are you awake? Are you like the ostrich who's got their head buried in the sand because you just want to pretend like if I pretend it doesn't exist, it'll go away? No. Wake up. This is what Paul says. Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly. That word circumspectly is a is an interesting word. It has a military connotation. It paints a word picture of a group of soldiers who are marching in step with one another to precise orders, to a precise cadence, and they are walking exactly. They're not just wandering around like this with their shirt tails hanging out and just staggering around, all going in circles. No, it's a picture of an army that is marching in step. Their steps are exact. Their steps are measured. Their steps have purpose. Paul says, walk circumspectly. So we don't get this because we don't, we're not Greek and we don't understand the Greek language, so we don't really get the whole word picture connotation when we read this in the English. But this is what these believers would have understood when Paul says, walk circumspectly. In other words, walk with discipline. Walk like a soldier in an army and march with discipline. Walk circumspectly. Not as fools, but as wise. Don't walk as a fool, but walk as one who is wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise. What's going to determine if we are unwise? If I'm not walking circumspectly and I'm walking as a fool, guess what the Apostle Paul would say that I am being? Wise or unwise? He says, walk circumspectly, walk not as unwise, but as wise. Therefore, do what? Redeem the time. Therefore, don't be unwise, but, be, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So, if we're contrasting the wise with the unwise, and he says, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, how else could we say, or what else could we say would equate to wisdom? To know what? To know what the will of the Lord is. Don't be unwise, but know what the will of the Lord is. In other words, don't be unwise, but be wise. Well, what, what does that mean, Paul? That means know what the will of the Lord is. How, Christian, are you going to know what the will of the Lord is? Well, I get this feeling in my stomach, and when I get that feeling, I know that God's talking to me. Really? Listen, there's, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of people living in active sin that the Bible calls sin and unrighteousness who have convinced themselves that they're on their way to heaven because they got that feeling in their stomach. And they just know that God loves them, even though, even though I'm in sin, even though I, you know, I, but, but I just know because 
No, you don't know. You're a fool because you don't know what the will of the Lord is because you're basing the will of the Lord on a feeling on what I have deceived myself into believing what must be true instead of going to the word of God and saying, this defines what is true. Not the feeling in my stomach, not the burning in my bosom, none of that. Not the dream I had last night. Now, this word determines what is true. This word tells us what the will of the Lord is. Don't be unwise, but know what the will of the Lord is. We're talking about being filled with the Spirit. And here we go, right here. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul said, here is a picture of unredeemed man. He is filled with all unrighteousness. He is darkness. Paul's writing a letter to the sons of God, the children of God, and he said, you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You once were darkness filled with all unrighteousness. Now you are light in the Lord. Be filled with the Spirit. We don't see this either in the, in the English because we don't have a way to really convey it. But in verse 18 of Hebrews 5, when Paul writes, or it's translated into the English, but be filled with the Spirit, we need to understand that he's not talking about have an experience at some point in time in your life and you're filled with the Spirit and we call it good. That phrase, be filled, be, that means be continuously, be constantly, be being filled with the Spirit is what's really conveyed there. This is an active, present tense, ongoing thing that's taking place in your life. Be filled with the Spirit. So redeemed, you are light in the Lord and you are to be constantly filled with the Spirit. Now, we've talked about this before. Why did Paul use drunkenness as a contrast against being filled with the Spirit? You guys know it's a sin to be drunk. People ask me all the time, is it a sin to drink alcohol? I know there are pastors who disagree on this question. For me personally, drinking alcohol is not a sin. But the Bible is very clear that being a drunkard is a sin. And why was being a drunkard a sin? Because when you give yourself over to wine, to alcohol, you are relinquishing control. You're giving control to that substance, and you are now controlled by something else. And this is what Paul is saying. Don't be controlled by wine, by drink. Be controlled with the Spirit of God. Be controlled with the Spirit of God. 
If you're a drunkard, you're not controlled by the Spirit of God. You're controlled by alcohol. If you're an alcoholic, you're not controlled by the Spirit of God. You're controlled by alcohol or marijuana or crack cocaine or what, whatever, chocolate syrup, <laughs> bluebell ice cream. You can't go to bed without having your half gallon of bluebell ice cream, then maybe bluebell ice cream's got a hold on you. I know those cows are nice looking. They're just so precious looking, you know. It's a little cowbell hanging there, but they're deadly too, you know. It's what is controlling you? What is filling your life? There's only one thing, one person that is to control you. That is God. So in Christ, you are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says. And we are created and we are designed to be filled with God's Spirit. Now, we read Acts 4, 31 through 33. I want to look at four from these verses. Let's go back to Acts chapter 4. I want to look at these verses and I want to look at four hallmarks of a Spirit-filled life. We could talk about a lot more. Within these four, there are multi, multiple layers that we could go to here. But I just picked, I picked this scripture here because they prayed something very specific. These guys came back. They were told not to preach Jesus. I love this scripture. This is the scripture Let's go, have you got back to Acts chapter 4? Let's go up a few verses and let's look at the context of this. So Peter and John, they've been threatened by the council, by the Sadducees. They come back to the other disciples who are gathered together. This guy was healed. He'd been, a, he'd been crippled for all of his life, and they got upset. And they come back, and verse 24 says, So when they, heard that they, when they heard that, they told him what had happened, that they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them, verse 23. Then it says, So when they heard their report, they, meaning all the disciples that were gathered there, raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, look at this, look what the Old Testament scriptures declare, look what the Psalms declare. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot vain things? And the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Do you see what they understood? They understood who was Lord. They understood who was in control of things. They understood who was driving the ship. They understood that God had a plan before time began and that Jesus Christ 
the Lamb of God crucified was part of that plan. And they said, Lord, we understand the nations rage in vain. The people plot things in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers, they all do it in vain. Why? Because they were all gathered to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined beforehand to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants. That, that was them. See, this is the way we ought to be praying today. I mean, I wish to God we could get people to rally around and begin to pray today instead of signing petitions to change things in Washington or get voter drives going. I'm all for voting. Vote. Please exercise your right and vote. But don't think your voting is going to change anything if we're not praying, if we're not taking a stand, if we don't understand who's really in control, who the Lord really is. Obama is not Lord. Romney is not Lord. Republican and Democrat is not Lord. Washington, D.C. is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He reigns on high. He is in control of what is happening. Do you trust him, Christian? Do you trust him? Here's their prayer. A very relevant prayer for us today. Now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hands to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, and the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because that was their desire. Because it was, number one, it was God's will, and it was also their desire. And they asked for it, and they received what they asked for in simple faith. They spoke the word with boldness. They gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus with power. We are designed in Christ... Everything I'm going to talk to you about, everything I'm talking to you about, that's good. To be filled with the Spirit. All of that happens in one place and in one place only, in Christ. And it happens one way and one way only. It happens by the power of the Spirit. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. No man did it. This is what God, the Lord, has done by His Spirit. So in Christ, by the power of the Spirit... We are designed to speak, to live, to manifest his word with boldness as a witness to Christ. The purpose of 
God pouring out his spirit was, was to reveal truth to them, to teach them, but it was also to empower them that they would not be fearful. Before the spirit of God was poured out on Pentecost, we saw a fearful church. On the day of Pentecost, when that 120 came out of the upper room, they were not fearful any longer. Why? Because God had endued them with power from on high, and that power gave them a revelation of the complete love of God. And that love, that knowledge, that revelation of God's love, cast away all fear to the point that they did not even love their lives unto death. David Brooks gave me a book called The Early Christians in Their Own Words. And it is just letters from the early church, the early Christians, up through the end of the first century. It is amazing. The things that are accounted in that book didn't happen because men were stronger then than they are now, because they were tougher then than they are now, because they were more brave then than they are now. They were able to endure unspeakable things that was done to them over and over and over again. Not by their own power, but by the power of the Spirit that filled them because they did not love their lives unto death. They weren't trying to figure out how to twist and manipulate the word of God into making it say something that it doesn't really say. So that I can believe a theology that doesn't really come from the word of God, it comes from the pit of hell. If if a lot of the modern movement in the church today would read, well, they wouldn't read it. They would say that those guys just need to get saved. They would say, those guys just need some good teaching. They just didn't know what they were talking about. I don't think so. When they put Polycarp to the stake, and they said, bring the nails, he said, no, don't nail me. He said, the same love that has held me all of these years will hold me in the fire. And he's in the Colosseum, and the people are so angry because the flames won't consume his flesh. And they are becoming more and more and more enraged. Till finally they they just send someone over there just to kill him. After they had done unspeakable tortures to him, trying to get him to denounce Christ. I don't believe any of us will ever experience anything even close to that. But the question still stands. What are you filled with? In some ways, I think it would be easier if someone came and pointed a gun to our head and said, either deny Christ or I'll kill you, versus the things that we are seduced to follow because we follow the lust of our flesh, because we... We want to believe there's an admixture here that this is true and this is true and this is true. I can put it all together and make my own truth here, but, but now I profess the name of Jesus, so I know I'm going to heaven even though, no. Let's get real, church. Your salvation is not a magic formula. It's not an incantation. Oh, I said the incantation, so I must be saved. Now I can live like hell and do anything I want. No. Because your life like hell is portraying what you're really filled with. And if you're filled with all unrighteousness, guess what? You need to be filled with the Spirit. And the only way you're going to ever be filled with the Spirit is to be saved by the Savior. 
And when the Savior saves us and he crucifies our flesh to that cross and he raises us up in his new life, he fills us with, our, with, with his spirit. And our life, though not perfect, and though we are a work in progress and we are all stumbling along this path, this journey of faith, where is your life pointed? Where is your life headed? Is your life pointed in the direction of being more and more and more conformed to the glorious image of the Son of God? Or are you in pretense saying that it is while you are headed down the road to hell, but you've said the magic formula, you walk the magic aisle, I've got my name on the magic roll, I go by the name Christian, but does it really mean anything in your life? Does it? We'll go out there and say anything about anyone, do anything, but then we want to come and act holier than thou. Uh -uh. What are you filled with? You need to ask yourself that question. Christian, what are you filled with? Who is Jesus to you? Is Jesus someone you would die for? Would you give your life for Jesus? Would you? It's easy to say yes, because no one's pointing a gun to your head. No one's threatened to do unspeakable things to you and prolong your torture over the course of days and make you feel and experience the maximum amount of pain possible without killing you so they can extract a denial out of you. I know why I was born in America, because I couldn't do it. I ain't not going to stand here and pretend to you that I'm big enough and strong enough and brave enough to do that. I mean, if God let it happen, then I, all I can do is say, God, you better give me the grace to withstand it. Because there ain't nothing inside of me big enough and strong enough and tough enough to be able to withstand that. But, but that's not the point. The point is, do you love God? And how much do you love God? Do you just love God with your words, with your lips? Or do you love God really and truly with all of your being? What is filling your life? You just look at your life and you'll see what's filling your life. What you fill your life with is what? Is what? It's what your life is filled with. What you fill your life with is what your life is going to be filled with. Now, I'm going to tell you, I, I want everybody to come to church all the time. But I'm not going to stand up here and for one instance make you believe that you're coming to this church or to any church on a regular basis is going to do anything for you if you don't have a love for Jesus. If he is not the one filling your life. And the only person that really knows the answer to that question as to whether he is the one really filling your life, there's two people that know the answer to that question. That's you, and that's God. And I know myself, I lie to myself a lot, but God never lies. And when I say, God, tell me the truth, you know what God always does? He always tells me the truth. What is your life filled with? Christian, what is your life filled with? They, these, these Christians prayed and they said, Lord, fill us. 
Lord, hear our prayer. Give us boldness to speak your word. You know what? God filled them with boldness. The spirit-filled life is marked with boldness. It says that, look at this. Look at verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of his things he possessed was his, but they had all things in common. They sold their stuff. They pooled their resources. Anyone that had need, hey, oh, here, I got one. Take it. Use it. Oh, I got one of these. Here, you take it. Use it. You can have it. Oh, you need food? I've got food. Come, let me feed you. Oh, you need... They had all things in common. They were one heart and one soul. We are designed, do you understand this? We are designed to be of one heart and one soul. Whose heart should our heart beat with? It should be the heartbeat of God. Whose soul, whose mind, whose will should be ours? Not my will, but thy will be done, O Father in heaven. Let this mind... Philippians 2.5, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So they were of one heart. They were of one mind. We could call this unity. Unity is not an abstract concept. We act like it is. We talk about it like it is. But here's the reality. For the believer, unity is a practice that is only perfected in the truth with one another. Unity is perfected. It's it's a practice that is only perfected in the truth with one another. This doesn't mean that we have license. This doesn't mean that we have partisanship. This doesn't mean that we have separatism. This means that we have liberty in love. Some of you know that one of my most favorite things in the world is to sit down around a cup of coffee and talk about the Word of God and talk about why I believe what I believe and why you believe what you believe. And sit there and break apart the Word of God and go line upon line and precept upon precept. And we give each other in love the liberty to divide the Scripture differently, maybe, to interpret the Scripture differently, maybe. But in the areas that are absolutely unshakable, there is no question of who Jesus is. There is no question of how we are saved. There is no question about the atonement. There is no question about certain things. We are in unity. But we are also of one heart and of one soul. The mark of the Spirit-filled life is a life marked by unity. The pursuit and the desire of it. Then it says they had all things in common. If anyone had possessions, they didn't count them their own. They brought all their things together. They laid them and they distributed each one as anyone had need. We are designed to be a whole body. Do you know that your hand is not a foot? Have you ever wanted your hand to be a foot? Anybody? Anybody ever want their nose to be a big toe? Anybody? Your nose is a nose, your big toe is a big toe. Do you know they both serve different purposes? 
you didn't have a nose, there's a lot of things you, you, you can't even imagine if you didn't have a nose, what you'd miss out on, how dangerous life might be. If you didn't have a big toe, you can't imagine how uncoordinated and ungraceful you'd be. But they're two separate things. They weren't meant to be the same thing. But aren't you glad your one body has two big toes, two ears, one nose, a mouth, lips, ten fingers, ten toes, two feet, two hands, two elbows, two knees? Aren't you glad? Because if you take any of those things out of there, you know what? Your body suffers. So God designed the many members of your body to be what? To be one together. To share, to supply to one another what the other needs. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. We are designed to be a whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, effectively working by every by which every part does its share, causing growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I promise you, if my nose could love, it would love my big toes. Because without my big toes, I would be falling and breaking my nose all the time. But my nose can't express that, and neither can my big toes. But guess what we can do? The Bible says we are many members of one body. Do we know how to be thankful for one another, even in our diversity, even in our differences? Or do we demand, I'm a toe, therefore you must be a toe. I'm an ear, therefore you must be an ear. It's no more, that's impossible. Can we not love people for who they are in the truth? and allow them to be who God created them to be, to function the way God created them to function, and to bear with them as love commands us and demands of us, to bear with them in all things. Can we not do that? Or have we become the object of our service, and we now, the creature, want to serve ourselves, and so forget the creator and his creation, except for this one, because this is the only creature I'm worried about. That's not a spirit-filled life. One of the hallmarks of a spirit-filled life is love. Because you see love, the noun, do you know love is, love, the word love is a noun and a verb. So love, the noun, has absolutely no meaning if love, the action verb, is missing. Do you get that? The husband who tells his wife, I love you, but never manifests that love, never demonstrates that love, do you realize that? Word love that is a noun that declares I have love for you, but I never get to experience. I'm never a recipient of that love. I just hear of it, but I never experience it. It becomes hollow and meaningless. Same with parents and kids, kids and parents. So, love must become more than a word we use to ease our conscience. Love must become our way of life. Loving God and loving one another. And we can't love God or one another if we don't have love for both. That's more than just a word to ease our conscience, but it's, it's something that is manifest in our life. And the last thing is this, so... Boldness marks a spirit-filled life. Unity marks a spirit-filled life. Love marks a spirit-filled life. 
In the last line of verse of verse um, 33, the last line says, "And great grace was upon them all." When I hear the word grace, I cannot help but think of the word humility. Because in two places in the scripture, in James and in Peter, both quote the scripture that says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So God in his word has eternally linked grace with humility. There is no grace apart from humility, and there is no humility apart from grace. And it says, great grace was upon them all, which tells me that there was great humility in the church. We're designed to be in humble submission to God, receiving His grace and resisting pride, lust, and the evil one. God resists the proud, but He gives grace, more grace to the humble. Stand stead, resist Him steadfastly in the face. Submit yourself to God, and the devil will flee. Resist Him, and He'll flee. Resist Him, James says, steadfastly in the faith. Or I think Peter wrote that. So humility is the mind of Christ. We let be in us. That, was, that is worked out through us in witness to others for his glory. If I'm not humbled before God, if I'm not in loving, willing submission to God, it's hard for me to be humbled before anybody else. If there's no loving submission to the will of God in Christ, as revealed in the word of God, there is no real humility. There is only pretense. So a spirit-filled life is marked by humility. And humility speaks of grace. And humility speaks of obedience. And humility speaks of, of what? Exactly what Peter said. Humble yourself, therefore, under his mighty hand of power, and he will exalt you in due time. Boldness, unity, love, humility. Those are hallmarks of a spirit-filled life. Now, we like to often talk about other things in terms of a spirit-filled life, specifically gifts of the Spirit. But I think Paul made it really clear in 1 Corinthians 13, that gifts mean absolutely nothing if there is no fruit and no character. In other words, you are just exactly what Paul says, you're a clanging symbol that, whose sound means absolutely nothing. You just like to hear yourself clang. If you don't have what? If you don't have love. Who is love? God is love. And all of these are characteristics that we find in God. Therefore, they should be found in the children of God. What are you filled with today? Who is filling you today? I pray that it is God in His Spirit. Let's all stand. Now, I'm going to pray, and we're going to thank God for the food next door, then just go next door, sit down. And um, they should have everything ready here if they don't already have it ready. We have plenty of food. Please, please, please stay.
Father, we thank you for the food of your word. Lord, we've talked about being filled with the Spirit. Lord Jesus, you made it as easy as this. If you want to receive the Holy Spirit, ask the Father in heaven and he will give. Because he's not like an evil father. For even evil fathers know how to give good gifts to their children who ask. How much more will your heavenly Father give to those who ask? The question is, are you asking in sincerity from a true heart, or are you asking in pretense? And you can only answer that question. The Bible talks about being double-minded. He says, wash your hands, cleanse your hand, purify your heart, you double-minded, and repent. To repent means to change your mind. Father, I pray that you would reveal the condition of our mind to us. Lord, believer or non-believer, if we're living in double-mindedness, Lord, if we're trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, and we've deceived ourselves into thinking that that's okay, Father, I pray that you would break that illusion in our lives, that you would deal with our hearts by the power of your Spirit, that you would discomfort us to the point that, God, we would be either hot or cold. But, Lord, you despise lukewarmness, and I pray, God, you would deliver your church from being lukewarm, that we would be either hot or cold. My prayer today is that we would be, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, hot. Hot in our love for Him. Hot in our love for one another. Hot in our commitment to the gospel, to preach the gospel, to live the gospel, to demonstrate the gospel through our very lives, at all costs, everywhere we go. We thank you for that, Father God that you will perform those things by your Spirit, and we invite you to do that. Now, Lord, we thank you for the food that's next door, the hands that prepared it and made all of this possible. Thank you for the gifts that will be given today to go to support our missionaries. Pray, God, that you would multiply those gifts. We thank you for those missionaries who are serving you in various places under various conditions. God, thank you for giving us the opportunity to help them today in the comfort of this building, at the table with a nice meal. Thank you, Father, for your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day. If you want prayer, you have any questions about anything I might have talked about today or in the past, or you just want to talk or have questions, come see me. And There's plenty of food. I promise you we won't run out. God bless you.